And if you don't want to comment, what message do you think you're sending? The moment of silence addressing racist violence as U.S. protests ramp up for another night. Hands up! Get used to the new normal at school. It's likely that we will have to have a hybrid system again. Why hybrid learning will likely be with us well into the fall. And a wild story from the North Coast. Once I got outside, all I heard was, help, I'm getting attacked by a wolf. How he saved his dad's life. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks very much for joining us. We start our coverage with another night of protests across the U.S. triggered by the death of George Floyd and the ensuing reaction from the U.S. president. Tonight, the demonstrations have been mostly peaceful, even as some people break curfews imposed in major U.S. cities. Aaron MacArthur has the latest, including our prime minister's response to a question about President Trump's handling of the crisis. Curfews now in place across the United States. As protests continue to fill the streets for the eighth straight night. The death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, sparking a level of civil disobedience and violence not seen in America since the 1960s. What do you think about all of this? That black people should get the respect that white people do by the cop. The situation escalated dramatically Monday evening. President Trump deliberately stoking the flames with an incendiary speech and a staged photo op at a church near the White House. In order for the president to walk across Lafayette Square, National Guard troops and police officers opened fire on peaceful demonstrators to force the crowd back. Trump holding the Bible in his hand, denounced by church officials a day later. Mr. President, we found the misuse of the Bible and the church as a mere photo opportunity Deplorable and disgraceful. Monday night, the violence front and center again. Looters smashing windows in midtown Manhattan. In Seattle, peaceful protests turned ugly in the blink of an eye. In the Capitol Hill neighborhood, tear gas and flashbangs fired at protesters and journalists. Now advancing on protesters. Oh my gosh, what are Dozens of people across the country, including police officers, have been hurt or killed during this week-long insurrection. In New York, three officers seriously injured after being run over by SUVs. And in St. Louis, four officers suffering gunshot wounds. Thank God they're alive. They're alive. But I... Can we make some sense out of this? The crisis south of the border on everyone's mind around the world. Tuesday morning, Prime Minister Trudeau asked about violence and specifically Trump's church photo op. His answer, speaking volumes. I'd like to ask you what you think about that. And if you don't want to comment, what message do you think you're sending? Aaron MacArthur, Global News. 
All right, Global's Reggie Cicchini joins us now live from Washington, D.C., where curfew is in effect. It's come and gone, really. Reggie, the protests violent yesterday, but so far today and this evening, largely peaceful. What's the scene right now? Good evening, Sophie. Those, pe- those protests have been largely peaceful, and you're right, we are uh, two hours now into the curfew. You can see there is still uh, a fairly large crowd that's gathered towards the front of Lafayette Square. The White House is in the background. There have been some uh, bouts of aggression that have started up with the protesters throwing water bottles towards police on the other side and starting to bang things and rattle on the fences. Uh, for the most part, though, it does remain peaceful. Some of these protesters are starting to break away and head to other protests that are surrounding the city right now, down on the National Mall and up in one of the historic parts of D.C that was rioted and and lit on fire back uh, in the 1960s. Uh, But again, a little bit of aggression happening right now, two hours into the curfew. It's unknown when police are going to come out and deal with this. But for the most part, this has been an incredibly peaceful protest. Mm -hmm. And one thing that might might calm things down a bit, Reggie, we're hearing uh, that there could be more charges coming in the death of George Floyd. Yeah, that's coming from the uh, lawyer for the Floyd family saying that by the time Mr. Floyd is laid to rest on Tuesday, there could be uh, additional charges or at least arrests made of those three officers that were involved uh, in this situation with a possible additional charge or elevated charge to Derek Chauvin. There's also going to be a sweeping criminal uh, uh, human rights uh, investigation in towards the Minneapolis Police Department by the state to look for systemic racism that could have been uh, taking part within that police force over the last 10 years. So this could be something that potentially quells some of these protests and the violence that we've been seeing around uh, the last couple of days throughout this country. But again, here in D.C., two hours into curfew, still no sign of the police and no sign of this protest slowing down. All right. Thanks for that, Reggie Giacchini in Washington, D.C. for us. Reggie, thank you. Back here in B.C. now, major crimes investigators and the coroner are at a Salt Spring Island home, the scene of an apparent murder-suicide. Police were called to the home on Fulford Ganges Road. At about 5 p.m. Monday, there they found the body of a 48-year-old man and a 41-year-old woman who was suffering from severe injuries. Police say she died a short time later. The Vancouver Island Major Crimes Unit says the public is not at risk and no one else was hurt. They are not looking for suspects and no charges are anticipated in this case. Now, some positive and not so positive news when it comes to COVID-19 in this province. There have been two new outbreaks and they account for the four new cases we're seeing today, which brings our total to 2,601. Thankfully, though, there have been no new deaths, so that number stays at 165. Keith Baldry has more now on the new outbreaks and how the province is doing in its efforts to source PPE. I'm very pleased to say we have a number that have um, been declared over in the last 24 hours, including, uh, very importantly, uh, the Abbotsford Regional Hospital ICU outbreak. The outbreak at the Abbotsford Regional Hospital may be over, but Dr. Bonnie Henry today reminded everyone how serious it actually was. Ten healthcare workers were affected, including two who ended up in our intensive care unit. Meanwhile, the most important COVID-19 statistics remain relatively flat and stable. As hospitalizations continue to drop, critical care numbers are up slightly, and recoveries continue to climb in number. But there are two new outbreaks, both in offices in Delta and Abbotsford. One at New World Technology 
Technologies and then the uh, Maersk company distributing. Um, these are very small and once again um, this is a, a testament to how people are being very careful and vigilant. Still the overall COVID-19 numbers remain low as more and more businesses open their doors. We've seen many examples of business owners are getting creative, learning to operate safely and responsibly and all of us are getting that comfort level with how we can do this in ways that minimize our risk. Meanwhile, both Dr. Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix politely but firmly turned down B.C. Liberal leader Andrews Wilkinson's suggestion that restrictions be much further relaxed in regions of the province that don't have many cases of the virus. At this point, this approach has really served us well, um, and I think we should have a continued approach unless there's good evidence that there's a reason not to? Certainly the, the questions that are, be, that are posed by, uh, by Mr. Wilkinson and their team are reasonable questions, but I think our approach has been the right approach. It's the one that has yielded the best results. All right, Keith Baldry joins us now live from Victoria. Keith, it was interesting today to hear Minister Dix make that connection about the number of cases here in B.C. and our proximity to Washington State. Yeah, I think he's getting a little ahead of what he's going to be talking about on Thursday when they're going to be presenting new modeling uh, numbers that will show where the virus has come from. And, not, and he mentioned today a certain transportation corridor uh, linking us in Washington state and also the fact that one, the further you get away from that, the fewer cases of COVID-19 you see. Here's Minister Dix. Certainly, it is true that, um, that we've had fewer cases. Really, the f farther you get away from uh, the I-5 corridor here, we've had fewer cases. That's a fact. We've had more cases in Metro Vancouver. That's a fact. But it continues to be an issue in every part of the province. And I think continuing this approach with uh, Dr. Henry and Stephen Brown leading the provincial response, with all of the health authorities responding, and with, with maintaining a level of care that deals with the concerns of all the health authorities at a high level, I think that's the right approach. So more on that I-5 corridor will be coming on Thursday with the new modeling uh, presented by Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix. No briefing on COVID-19 tomorrow. There will be case numbers released tomorrow afternoon, though. And, of course, Premier John Horgan will be having his weekly availability, and we'll be carrying that live on BC1 as, as usual. Chris? We sure will. Okay, thanks, Keith. A Calgary couple stuck in India since the pandemic hit has been found dead in their New Delhi home. Their family in Canada says the two permanent residents spent weeks trying to secure a flight back home before their wait ended in tragedy this past weekend. Nadia Stewart reports. For a good 12, 16 hours, they didn't answer their phones on May 28th. Kamrathor recounts the day before he, his wife, and their family learned they'd never see his wife's parents again. 67-year-old Kirpal Manhas and his 65-year-old wife Devinder were found dead in their home in India last Saturday. They were just eager to, you know, get back home because given the restrictions that they had there, the elderly couple flew to their native country mid-November 2019, their first trip in over three years. They went to check on their properties. The plan was to return mid-April, but they found themselves caught in the middle of COVID-19 lockdowns. We had a habit of uh, calling them on a daily basis, once in the morning, once in the evening, uh, just to check on their safe being and everything. When the couple did not respond on May 29th, we started calling the neighbors that we had their contact information just for emergency purposes that we had. That's when uh, the police actually 
forcefully opened the door to their house and discovered their bodies. Indian police have three suspects in custody, including one man who was a tenant in the couple's house. It's believed this was a crime of opportunity. The couple killed because they were seen as wealthy. I felt very uh, sad for the family, but very angry at our government. Gina Takar was part of a volunteer group trying to organize flights to Canada that would also have carried permanent residents. The Manhas couple did not qualify for the government's repatriation flights because they were not citizens. Since news of their death, two government flights allowing permanent residents have been arranged. This was our fear uh, that people were going to start dying or getting hurt back there, especially the seniors and children. Takar says a total of seven Canadians have died in India, most of natural causes, but all of them separated from their loved ones here in Canada who struggle to find closure. Patty Historic Global News. After two full days of back to school, it turns out about 30% of B.C. elementary students and their parents have decided it's okay to head back to the classroom for the last few weeks of the school year. At the same time, we are getting a better idea of what socially distanced in-class education looks like and what that might mean for September. Richard Zussman reports. Is a classroom set up kids are going to have to get used to? It's likely that we will have to have a hybrid system again um, until we have a vaccine. Education Minister Rob Fleming touring Monterey Middle School on Tuesday in Greater Victoria. With concerns of a second wave of the virus on the horizon, the province now shifting planning from a full return to school in September to organizing a hybrid model, allowing for both virtual and in-class learning. We have to prepare to be able to move forward as we have done this Monday and move backwards when we get into the fall and winter. One concern on the horizon is overworking teachers who have already expressed worries balancing both virtual and in-class. A hybrid model could put pressure on parents needing to return to work. The current in-class model is concerning for some as well, described as restrictive with desks spread apart, minimal interaction and lots of time in front of that desk. Some parents are hearing stories of kids enrolled for in-class learning now dropping out. We already know that of the 15 that opted in, two on Tuesday have already opted out for the remainder of the the event because there simply isn't a lot they're, they're allowed to do. Critics say returning to the classroom this month has taken away precious planning time that could have been used for the fall. They've not really been given the time to figure out how they're going to teach their kids and their classes in September from the get-go in this new learning um, reality. And we're running out of time to do it because they're going to be busy teaching throughout this month. The province says a final decision on September will be made in August. A lot of time to get used to these classrooms that look a lot different from school, as so many know it. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Foreign students are a multi-million dollar revenue stream for B.C. schools, but with international travel halted indefinitely, far fewer are likely to come here this fall. Layoffs have already begun, but as Catherine Urquhart reports, the province's education minister is pretty confident most teachers will have a classroom to return to. It's already unclear what the coming school year will look like. Adding to that uncertainty, there will likely be far fewer foreign students in B.C., which totaled 21,000 this year. Some districts are already sending out layoff notices. 
Uh, districts that are doing that are doing it in accordance with the collective agreement. So we're working very closely with the districts that do have a, a fairly significant international student population. International students generated $260 million in 2018-2019. For the coming year, the Vancouver district is expecting a 35% decline in foreign student enrollment. So far, it doesn't anticipate layoffs. But North Vancouver District anticipates a 60% drop, eliminating $6 million. About 20 teachers are receiving layoff notices. West Vancouver projects 45% fewer foreign students, a loss of $4 million. One or two layoffs are planned, with cost savings to include not replacing about 20 leaving or retiring teachers and support staff. You know, and I've, I've been cautioning around uh, uh, r rolling up programs um, and, and having a lot of layoffs because it, it is hard to reestablish them once, once you've uh, taken them down. Despite the projected lost revenues and the layoff notices, BC's education minister is confident most teachers, if not all, will have jobs come September. We have growing enrollment in, I think, about 55 of 60 districts in BC. And uh, and so therefore, when you take out retirements, when you take out, when you factor in enrollment growth, we don't expect any layoffs will be permanent at BCT. And there's this: if border restrictions ease and the federal government resumes processing foreign student visas, there may not be a huge decline in international students. But for now, at least, it all remains uncertain. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. A Port Edward man is lucky to be alive after he was attacked by a wolf. While he recovers in hospital, his family shares the story of what saved him in just over a minute. A B.C. driver fights his distracted driving ticket and wins twice. Why he's still going to have to pay the fine coming up on the news hour. And there's no stopping a swarm of bees that showed up in a Toronto suburb. That's later. Right now, though, a man in his 70s is now recovering in hospital in Vancouver after being mauled by a wolf at a property in the remote coastal community of Port Edward. Stanley Russ was attacked by the animal without provocation or warning. His screams alerted his son and neighbours who rushed to help. And his kids spoke to Global Sarah McDonald about what finally scared the wolf off. The Russ siblings didn't plan to reunite this way. And certainly not under the circumstances. Hey, Frank. But the past few days for their family have been anything but predictable. We heard someone screaming outside, and once I got outside, all I heard was, help, I'm getting attacked by a wolf. So we went running over to help. Frank Russ, one of the first on scene late Friday, as his father, Stanley, was mauled by a lone wolf in a residential neighborhood of Port Edward in the province's north coast region. He was just maybe 15 feet from the door. They mainly go after uh, feral cats and small uh, dogs and that, but it's never a person. Certainly very, very rare that a wolf will attack a person. There's uh, prior to Friday, there's only been two other documented wolf attacks on people in British Columbia in the last 20 years. Remarkably, the elder Russ in his 70s survived the wolf relenting after finding itself under threat. After I saw the blood, I just grabbed whatever I could to throw at it to keep it at bay until the neighbor actually, uh, she rang, uh, hit her panic button on her van 
which scared it off. I didn't know what to think. I just cried and cried and cried. The injuries to Russ's lower body are severe and he'll need surgery, but he is alive to the relief of his loved ones. Hard on everybody. We lost our mom two years ago, so my dad's all we have left. A lone wolf captured near the community on Monday was killed by conservation officers and it's set to undergo a necropsy Wednesday. We love you, Dad. As the road to recovery for Russ begins. A lengthy process which continues at the province's largest hospital where Russ was flown from Prince Rupert on Monday. He's expected to stay here for treatment for the next couple of weeks. Sarah McDonald, Global News. An arrest of a man in downtown Kelowna that was caught on video has sparked an internal review of one of three RCMP officers involved. Global's Darian Matassafung has more on what the video shows and what RCMP are saying about the officer in question. A thorough internal review of the investigation and this officer's actions is underway. A Kelowna RCMP officer is the subject of an internal review after a social media video shows the officer striking a man in the face repeatedly during an arrest. I recognize that the tactics seen in the video are shocking to many people. Anytime an officer is required to apply a use of force option during an arrest, it can appear very disturbing. In the video, two officers are seen wrestling with the man when a third charges in. The third officer is then seen punching the man's face multiple times. Whoa, 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 whoa. When the third officer arrived, he observed that the man was still resisting arrest. In order to gain control of the situation, he was struck several times and then taken to the ground and handcuffed. A bystander filmed the incident. RCMP say the officer in question's job status is currently dependent on the findings of the review. He's not currently at the office today. Um, as part of our investigation, we will be um, making a determination with respect to his duty status. The incident started with a report of a possible impaired driver in a parking lot in the 200 block of Bernard Avenue on Saturday. The man has since been released from custody and police say he is not facing any criminal charges at this time. Darian Matassafong, Global News, Kelowna. Up ahead, a bold step for public booze consumption. It's going to look different block by block. North Vancouver grants some leeway for drinking in public. Also tonight, an updated list of the top COVID scams so you don't fall for them. Good evening. It's a beautiful commute over here at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Nice sunshine and no traffic, except do expect delays during the overnight hours for maintenance and lane closures 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. Bank securely from anywhere, anytime with CIBC. Whether it's paying bills, depositing checks, or transferring money in Canada and around the world, with CIBC you can do it all 24-7. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above the Alex Fraser Bridge. It's probably not going to come as a surprise that professional fraudsters see the COVID-19 pandemic as just another opportunity to con people out of their hard-earned money. Our Consumer Matters reporter Andrea is here with a new warning from the Better Business Bureau. And 
Thanks, Sophie. Well, a lot of these aren't new scams, but the fact that more people are staying home has made it easier, unfortunately, for fraudsters to find victims. Here are a few of the top scams to watch out for. One of the most timely scams is the fake government grant scam. You're promised free money from the government, and all you have to do is pay a one-time processing fee. You pay the fee and never get the money. The red flag is that the government will never actively solicit you and will never ask for an upfront fee. Another top scam involves puppies, and we've heard of this one before. Many people feel it's a good time to get a new pet. Victims who respond to an ad are asked to send money up front for special shipping and get nothing in return. If you are looking for a pet, the BBB recommends contacting your local animal shelter. And the number one scam, according to the Better Business Bureau, home improvement. An unscrupulous contractor promises a low price, but then either does nothing, does substandard work, or conveniently finds a problem that raises the price. Never hire a contractor without a signed contract that lays out the work to be done and the price. And always ask for references. With people, you know, looking for projects to do, you know, trying to find ways to stay active at home. If people pop up, you know, unsolicited visitors, door-to-door salespersons, people trying to get them to do on-the-spot um, home renovations, it could be an opportunity for them to fall victim to a scam. And so that, I believe, is one of the main reasons why that particular scam was number one. And other top scams involve advance fee loans, online purchases that never arrive, and job offers that ask people to pay up front for training or certifications. If you've spotted a scam, you can report it to the Better Business Bureau through its website. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can reach me. There's my email address at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. All right. Thanks, Anne. A Vancouver Island man has lost a three-year court battle over a distracted driving ticket he received even though his phone was immobilized. Two lower courts agreed it couldn't be distracted driving, but the Crown kept appealing. Now, as Ted Chernecki reports, B.C.'s highest court has ruled that a disabled phone is still considered an electronic device. When is an electronic device not an electronic device? That is the question three different B.C. courts have been arguing for the past three years. Two of them ruled that when a phone's capability is disabled while driving, then it's no different than a cup of coffee or any other object in the car. But yesterday, the B.C. Court of Appeal ruled differently. What the Court of Appeal held in this decision is that an immobilizing app installed on your phone is insufficient to escape the purview of this law. The ticket was issued on Vancouver Island's so-called Colwood Crawl, a notorious bottleneck where police have time to observe driver behavior. Patrick Tannhauser says he picked up his software-disabled phone to access some papers on the passenger seat. The screen was unlit and in his hand, steering wheel, when spotted by police. His lawyer successfully challenged the ticket, but now the BC Court of Appeal Tribunal says... A lamp unplugged is still a lamp. A cell phone turned off or with the phone function otherwise disabled is still a cell phone. A cell phone that is turned off can be turned on. A cell phone with a dead battery can be plugged in. That can make for a distracted driver. The the decision turned on one fundamental point, and that was the definition of electronic device. Essentially, the court said it doesn't matter whether the phone has had its software disabling it from receiving calls and operating as a phone, it still maintains its status as an electronic device. Certainly, it's true that the fact that we have three levels of court uh, considering the same provisions, uh, considering the same facts, and issuing three different interpretive decisions 
supports the fact that this law is far from clear. The BC Court of Appeal did not convict Townhauser, rather it ordered a new trial. If the Crown doesn't want to retry the case, Tannhauser doesn't have to pay the original fine because the lower courts dismissed it. Tannhauser told his lawyer he has no appetite to take this to the Supreme Court of Canada. Ted Chernecki, Global News. Still to come, what it really means to join the fight for racial justice. One can't just simply say that they're an ally. Black leaders offer guidance to those who want to help but aren't sure how. And cheers to North Vancouver for expanding the list of places you can enjoy a drink. It's out over here at the Massey Tunnel, and as you can see, traffic is in very good shape, both north and south. Uh, also just cleared a police incident that was on the Highway 17A on-ramp to head north. Kermat Collision and Auto Glass have been family-run and locally owned since 1973. For unmatched quality repairs and exceptional service, choose Kermac. For location information, visit Kermac.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Massey Tunnel. The racial unrest in the United States is having an impact right around the world, and protesters here are drawing attention to Canadian shortcomings in racial equality. Many of us are wondering how we can help and be an ally for positive change. Global's Camille Karamali spoke to leaders of colour for some guidance. It's a term we've been hearing a lot. We need to be allies. Ally to stand up and support the black community on Instagram post after post of a blank black square. The hashtag Blackout Tuesday trending on social media in support of protesters taking to the streets in many cities across the United States and here in Canada against anti-black racism. The lines have been going crazy. The Black Youth Helpline in Toronto recently receiving a wave of support. We have persons are asking you know, for opportunities to volunteer. We have also persons who want to donate. But members of the black community say the support needs to go beyond that. One can't just simply say that they're an ally. You really, in order to, to consider yourself in that role, you have to do the work. And that work, at the very least, involves starting a dialogue with members of the black community. Part of that work is to use their social capital um, the influences that they have in their community, at their dinner tables, in their offices, over Zoom meetings, to consistently bring up how do we challenge anti-Black racism. But this professor of human resources management says it's also about changing the deep-seated systemic practices by ensuring members of the Black community a seat at the table. So I want to encourage everyone who's listening to look around and say, where are Black voices at our boardrooms? in our executive committees, on our teams, in our classrooms, in our hallways, in our gymnasia, in society at large. The hope is that once the protests die down, the conversation will continue. The cost of silence is complicity. Allies need to understand that. It's time for me to speak less and to listen more. Kamel Karamali, Global News. A boost for Burnaby Hospital today amid the pandemic. Engineer and entrepreneur Jack Jin donating $10,000 and a supply of N95 masks to Burnaby General Hospital's COVID-19 fund. Jin's family foundation is known for its community philanthropy, but he says it's hard to give when people aren't being as kind as they should be. Jin says if we are silent in the face of recent incidents of anti-Asian racism, we are complicit. Now here I am getting ready to make a make a, a donation and and an 84-year-old lady on a walker gets tripped up by a young 
a young person and left her on the ground. Uh, and that just, that just it breaks my heart and it causes angst and anger. Later on the news hour, a Toronto suburb still buzzing. So all the bees were all over the stop sign. The neighborhood invasion that got everyone talking. And in sports, Canadian golfer Nick Taylor goes back to his roots, playing for his first paycheck since the COVID crisis started. As cities across B.C. loosen up some laws and restrictions to help local businesses reopen successfully, the city of North Vancouver is, stake, is taking it one step further. North Van Council has voted to become the first jurisdiction outside of Quebec to allow drinking in public. Linda Aylesworth has the details. For businesses like Raglan's Bistro in North Vancouver, reopening for business couldn't have come soon enough. Sales went from, from fairly good to zero. Uh, overnight. But with room for only half their usual clients due to physical distancing regulations, there'll still be challenges. Fortunately, the city of North Vancouver has a plan. As we start to see the economy open up more and our businesses start to open up more, we want to make sure that we are providing enough space for people to maintain their physical distance. It's called the Open Streets Action Plan. North Vancouver City Council unanimously passed it Monday night. It will allow more room for residents to safely walk about and businesses to expand seating. What we're talking about is going down to uh, one lane in segments of Lonsdale, moving the parking over, and then what we're getting is another lane which is more space for people. It's 100% positive. I mean, it's amazing. To be honest, it's uh, I, I can barely envision it. You know, the, the whole street shut down with people eating and drinking. Another change, one that residents have been asking for for years. We will allow in some parks and some civic places, such as where we're standing right now, will allow for the public consumption of alcohol. As for why now, parks are the only backyards that 80% of North Van residents have. So with so many stuck at home due to the pandemic, it seemed like a good time to give it a try. This is a real opportunity for us to, to test things out, to be flexible, to be adaptable. Municipalities have the authority under the Liquor Licensing Act to allow drinking in public areas. And yet Quebec is the only other jurisdiction to have done so. As for whether or not these changes are temporary or here to stay, Time will tell. What really is, is that the world changed on us, and now we're adapting the city to fit this new world that we live in, and, and I think it's going to be a good one. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. It's going to be an interesting summer. I think so. In, in, <laughs> in North, North Van, yeah. That's right. Let's take the ferry. Mm -hmm. I mean the sea bus. Uh, all right, let's check in with Christy right now, who's <laughs> over there in North Van. Yet another reason to come for a visit, Christy. <laughs> That's exactly right. So today was a wet one, not a day to be hanging out in the parks, that's for sure. Uh, cold front uh, moved across the region, but we're certainly seeing a break right now. And we will over the next few days, so we've got some good news in store for you, but we're still on flood watch. So let's start off with the areas in the interior. Good news, bad news scenario. Great news for southern BC. Look at all of the yellow. So uh, boundary, west and east Kootenai region all downgraded to a high stream flow advisory. Rivers there are now receding. Great news, but we're still focusing in on that Quinell-William 
Williams Lake area in particular, the Horsefly, Quinell River, Caribou and Tributary Rivers and streams, mainly east of that Williams Lake and Quinell area. Now the peak is expected later today or into tomorrow. So it's all because of the rainfall that we saw today in that region, where southern BC didn't see as much. Now you'll note in this uh, forecast, there is another peak next weekend. But generally speaking, over the next few days after today's rain, we are in the clear for significant rain as well. Temperatures will be near seasonal. That's great news when it comes to the forecasting for the um, flood situation. So later this week, starting Wednesday through the rest of the week, we have generally seasonal conditions, a few showers, south coast regions, cloud in the morning, sunshine in the afternoon, maybe a few showers early Thursday, but that would be about it. The next big system is not expected until the weekend, and that's when we could see a scenario in the interior once again. And I'll leave you with our central windows weather window, which is from this morning uh, near the Seashell area, gravity waves. And we can see gravity waves in behind a cold front, which we certainly saw a cold front this morning. One more shot of those same gravity waves thrown across the um, Strait of Georgia in Nanaimo. Thank you to Barry for that. All right, guys, back to you. Interesting. Thanks, Christy. All right, we'll check in with Squire now and uh, look at what's coming up in sports. Squire. Yes, the uh, Vancouver Golf Tour today got a big name at its Cultus Lake event. Nick Taylor showed up. You know, I'll be able to support it when I can. Um, it's just kind of unique these days because I'm not home that often, so I love coming out here. He came home during the PGA pause due to the pandemic, and now he's getting ready to eventually get back on the tour. Also tonight, the swarm that stopped traffic in a Toronto neighborhood. It seems strange that in the middle of COVID that there might be a labor dispute in the sports world, Squire, but... Yes, that is true. But Soccer, there is. baseball too, but uh, Major League Soccer threatened to lock players out today if they didn't agree to the owner's last contract offer, which came down on the weekend. Then the owners thought, just like you said, it's the middle of a pandemic. Maybe it's not so smart to go from lockdown to lockout. So they changed their final offer, extended the deadline until tomorrow so all the players could vote. And the word is the changes the owners made might be enough to have everyone give each other a virtual hug and get all the teams to head down to Orlando, Florida later this month for a tournament that will restart the MLS season, which of course stopped like most leagues on March 12th. Okay, back in February, Abbotsford's Nick Taylor won the ATT event, AT and T event in Pebble Beach. A lot of T's in there, but I forgot the and. The uh, biggest win of his career. But since the tour has been on hold because of the pandemic, Taylor has been back in BC waiting to go back on tour. And so today he joined some old friends on the Vancouver golf tour to sharpen his skills for when he does go back to the US. Ladies and gentlemen, the 2020 AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am champion from Ledgeview Golf Club, Nick Taylor. Nick Taylor is getting his competitive feet back on the ground. Taylor teeing it up at the Vancouver Golf Tour's Cultus Lake Open. His first time playing for a paycheck since the PGA Tour went on hiatus months ago. I took probably seven, eight weeks off of very limited type golf and 
Uh, I've been back here for six weeks now. It's the last three, four weeks I've been been practicing, trying to play as much as I can. So yeah, it's been uh, it's nice to have a little warm up. That'll help. Prior to the pandemic, Taylor was arguably playing his best golf on tour. He shot a PGA career low 63 in the opening round of the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am en route to his second career victory. And then it all came to a screeching halt. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's tough on the golf side that uh, had some momentum, was playing great, was going to get a lot of tournaments that uh, were going to be fun to play in. But um, I feel like the whole world's come to a halt. So golf really isn't that important. But uh, for a golf side, yeah, it sucked. But I'm excited to have a little break. You know, our family's so young with our son, seven months old. So uh, that's been a great part of it. What's also great is Nick returning to his golf roots. Taylor cashed his first ever winner's check on the Vancouver Golf Tour. His presence here at the par 63, 4,100-yard Cultus Lake Golf Course, marking the seventh straight full-field tournament since the VGT resumed play. I mean, it's amazing to have uh, someone who came across our path as a young 20-year-old uh, after college um, in his first couple years as a professional to see what he's done out on the PGA Tour along with Adam Hadwin, another one of our alumni, but to announce him uh, this morning as the AT&T Pebble Beach Open champion, I mean, that's pretty amazing. Obviously, to have, uh, to have Nick sign up is, is a huge boost for us. I mean, the last three weeks has been awesome. Uh, this last week here in members, is it true? All these rumors going around, me just kind of giving it the, the grin and saying I'm not sure. Uh, it, it's been exciting times around here. I, didn't, I hope he knows what it means for him to sign up uh, for an event like this. And he played well, Nick Taylor. Minus two. It's a one-day event, but he didn't win. Kevin Spooner out of Capilano beat him. Hmm. Congratulations that? to him and good to have Nick back in town. There you go. All right. Thanks, Squire. All right. Here's Andrew now with a preview of Global News at 11 tonight. Anne? Thanks, Chris. We are monitoring the situation in the U.S. tonight where there have been protests in more than 100 cities. This was the scene late this afternoon at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., where military police have joined park police in blocking access to the site. Plus, here at home, some welcome news for people living in the central Kootenai. A region-wide evacuation alert has been lifted now that floodwaters have receded. We'll let you know which areas are still at risk. Those stories and more when you join us tonight at 11 o'clock. Sophie, Chris. Sounds good, Anne. Thank you. Up next, tonight's healthcare hero and a story that's the bee's knees. We've been receiving some great nominations for our BC Healthcare Hero, honoring those who are working to protect BC during the COVID-19 pandemic. And tonight's comes from Joanne Blasnitz, who says her BFF, Myrna Zafra, is her healthcare hero. Myrna works at Langley Lodge, the care home that's been hardest hit in the province by COVID-19. Despite the devastating loss, Myrna has worked many extra hours and been a source of calm for many employees who are struggling through the outbreak. Joanne says the clients and their families love and appreciate Myrna, as do staff and management, because of her excellent attitude and her eagerness to make other people feel at home. Myrna, Joanne says you are her healthcare hero, and she is so proud to call you her BFF. And we want to thank you for your continued hard work and dedication during this difficult time. If you have a healthcare hero you would like to nominate, drop us an email. The address is bchealthcareheroes at globalnews.ca. Include a few pictures and some details about why they are your hero. And now an act of kindness that one Toronto business owner says she'll never forget. 
It all started with the discovery of thousands of honeybees on a stop sign. Global's Fraser Snowden explains. So all the bees were all over the stop sign. The stop sign at the corner of George Hawley Street and Little Beck Crescent is still abuzz with action. But this was the sign last week as thousands of honeybees chose this spot to rest. It was different, um, like, it, very interesting. I was intrigued by it. Chantal Sammons has lived here since March. She says the bees were something new and exciting. And right now with uh, COVID-19, you don't have as much to be able to do as something interesting to look at <laughs> and, uh, and discover. The street is currently under construction with new builds. One of the workers called in a local beekeeper to collect them. The swarm of bees was brought here to kiss my bees honey, where the beekeeper will now take care of the more than 40,000 found on the stop sign. But here's the sweet ending. All the neighbors who found them are going to buy dozens of jars of honey from the business owner who's been struggling throughout the pandemic. Yeah, so I'll just remove the lid a little bit. This is the hive the honeybees were transferred to. Neighbors asked for honey from these particular bees and pre-ordered more than 120 jars. A huge boost for a struggling business. The excitement and passion of that neighborhood is, has really uh, uh, brought me to tears a few times over the last week. It's, it's just been wonderful. Poyer, like many business owners, has seen a decline in sales of more than 50%. And Whitby residents wanted to help. Our community has uh, come together so nicely and we're just so happy to be supporting a small business, local business. Gratitude, man. <laughs> Sincere, honest gratitude. I'm going to get emotional, but yeah, absolutely. The act of kindness giving these bees a new place to call home and a business a chance to survive. Fraser Snowden, Global News. It's pretty sweet. <laughs> I was going to say that. Oh, man. Where are you to trying get... to take the words right out of your mouth? No. It's always good to get the buzz on the bees. Yeah, it sure is. Um, There's so many different puns, right? It, it is true. And so many flowers in behind Christy where I'm sure they're buzzing during the day. Uh, what's the last word on weather before we go, Christy? Thanks, Chris. You're exactly right. They're all around me right now. Well, we are in the clear for the next few days. We do still have a few showers possible, maybe a sprinkle tomorrow morning and again on Thursday morning. But overall, the trend is pretty nice over the weekend, though. That's when we could get back into cool, wet weather once again. The timing hasn't been great on the weekends lately, so we'll refine that as we get closer. Yeah, you can work on that, Christy. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks very much to all of you for watching. Hope you have a great night. Good night, all.